If you have your uh, favorite app, I'm almost put, put that together. If you have your favorite app or your Bible with you this morning, we'll be in Genesis 15. Genesis 15. Again, we're continuing this uh, exploring of this topic of covenant friendship. What is covenant friendship and how in the world can we invest ourselves in a friendship that is closely aligned to what Scripture has uh, to say about it. Genesis 15 will be in verses 1 through 20. If you have found your spot, would you please stand for the reading of Christ's Word this morning. May you hear the Word of Christ. After this, the Word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, you are, I am your great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household shall be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he, this is God saying to Abram, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged their halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Verse 12, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with a great possession. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried in a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoke fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, and he said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Raphites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for the reminder that we have been gathered this morning in order to posture our hearts towards you, that we would sing songs of celebration, sing songs of redemption, that we have been bought with a price and we have been made free. 
And so, Lord, may we now also worship you through Scripture. May you open our ears and our hearts to receive the word that you have for us this very day. And teach us what it means to be bound up in a covenant friendship with you, but also bound up in a covenant friendship with others. And so, Lord, open our ears and our hearts to receive the word you have for us this morning. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Whenever you get into a movie and realize the climax of the story, remember the climax of the story? That's where all the story has headed to at this point. That highest point in the movie that you're about to hit and you begin watching very carefully, don't you? Because this is the part of the movie that you have been waiting for up until this point. Then the main character that you have been watching this entire time, he or she stands out strong in the beginning, but then fails. And then after you have this movement to the rest of the movie, you continue to wait for this main character to finally understand himself or herself, understand his mission or her mission, and finally own it. Finally own it. We wait for this climax of the story, this momentous moment of whatever film we're watching. One of the very momentous moments that I can remember when I was working through this script this week is this. Even though it's sort of a side climax to the story, but Tombstone. You remember that scene between Doc Holliday and, remember his name? Ringo? Johnny Ringo. It's like the rest of the movie has been moving towards this main point in which Wyatt Earp will finally win the day. But on the side, there's this other climax that's starting to happen, and it's that of Doc Holliday, Holliday and Johnny Ringo. I'll be your huckleberry, right? You remember this momentous scene? Two great men who are able to use their guns in such a way that you cannot wait for them to finally battle it out. Or for the kids here this morning, or I should say Ross's age, and maybe up to myself, how many films were there for uh, Marvel up until the last couple? 20, I think there's 22 if I'm not mistaken. 22 independent films moving towards, in, uh, sorry, Infinity War and Endgame. That is the climax of that whole movie celebration of that particular story. And you cannot wait for it to all move that direction. Well, guess what, church? Once it comes to the story of Abram, the first name that we get later when he makes this full covenant with God, he receives the name of Abraham. But Abram is that kind of story in which we have at the very beginning this good story of Adam and Eve, and it seems that things are going up. But then the plot thickens. Adam and Eve rebel and run from God. And then you have all of these failures throughout the next about eight chapters until God calls for, in Genesis 12:1 to Abram. And so when you're reading all of the story up until this point, you think, oh, here is the guy that we've been waiting for. The one, the protagonist that will come and be this savior-like character in the story. 
So when we hit Genesis 12, we cannot help but think this is where the story is about to completely change up into this point. When Abram enters the scene, it is through him that not only the story of Scripture, but the whole world is about to be changed as well. Let's look at verse 15. We could accidentally jump over the part where uh, the covenant friendship without real, realizing it. If we just go to that first verse in uh, chapter 15, we might think, well, has, what does this have to do with covenant friendship? But notice what it says. The word of the Lord came. Despite the fact that human beings have since re rebelled against him, against God himself, God continues to befriend humanity. You see him befriending not only Adam and Eve, befriending uh, their children, Seth, befriending Noah. Then you have him befriending Abram. Covenant friendship as a way of reminder for what we looked at last week is this intentional promising of oneself to another. An intentional promising of oneself to another. And in fact, God is the best good friend that you could possibly find in Scripture. He never breaks His covenant. He never breaks those promises that He first sets up with humanity. So here you have in, in chapter 15 of Genesis a perfect example of God befriending a person, Abram, despite the fact that he is broken, that he is sinful, and he's a wildly rebellious human being. Yet God befriends him. And if I could be so bold this morning to say this, is that God loves, hear this out, church, God loves pursuing the most rebellious persons that you can wildly imagine. He loves pursuing wildly rebellious people. If you don't believe me, let me give you just a few examples from Scripture. Noah, you remember the story of Noah? We think about this man who has been set aside as a mission to build an ark, but what you find is that Noah doesn't fully buy into the project. It takes him a while. And then after all the flood has come and they finally settled, Noah continues to walk in ways of slothfulness and drunkenness. We forget that part of Noah. Then what about David? We think of David as this great king, and indeed he was, but we forget about the part where he's uh, a murderer on several occasions. He's a liar. And he's an adulterer. We forget about those parts. Or what about Jonah? We sometimes miss the story of Jonah in those four chapters where this uh, prophet has been set aside to go and preach this good news to Nineveh. You know what we forget? That Jonah, when he's told his mission, you are to go east, he goes the opposite direction west. And so that's why God sends a whale to swallow him up to bring him back east. He is trying his best to get furthest away from his mission. Do you know why? Because he's a bigot. He doesn't believe that this people of Nineveh deserves to hear the word of the Lord. He's a self-righteous bigot. He doesn't believe that they should be able to experience the grace and mercy of, of Yahweh. And so... What about New Testament? That's Old Testament. Remember Paul? Up until the point where he actually meets the resurrected Christ? Paul, his main job is to go and imprison and to murder all Christians. 
That was his job until he's met with the resurrected Christ. And then it completely flips. Church, God loves befriending wildly rebellious people. Even here, you might think Abram doesn't seem to be wildly rebellious. Indeed, he is. Yet God is pursuing this friendship with him in order to bless the world through Abram himself. Look at verses 2 and 3. Abram says this, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? For I have no children of my own. If you go back a couple of chapters to chapter 12, God tells him, I'm going to give you three things. One, I'm going to give you children. One day through you, all of these children of yours will have a land. And through them and also in this land, they will be wildly blessed. Those three things that God promises to Abram. And at this point in chapter 15, he's still trying to figure out, okay, what are you going to show me to prove to me, so to speak, that this indeed is true? It's easy. It is so easy, church, for us to treat God as this divine Santa Claus. We do it often. We don't mean to, but we do it often. God, what can you give me in order for me to trust you? I need some sort of gift and present. I need some sort of sign in order to know that your promises truly are true. But God's already reminded Abram of one important thing, that he is his shield. He is his reward. I hope you catch that because God himself is the reward in all of this. Not the things that he's giving him, but God himself is his reward and not anything that he puts in front of him. We have to be careful in separating God himself as our reward and the gifts that we're given from God. Because otherwise we only depend on God because of what he's, he's given us. We think that God's loved us only because I have this car, this house, this amount of money. No, 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 no. God himself is our gift. He is the one who is our reward, not the things that are wrapped up. We can be thankful for the things he's given us, but it doesn't mean that God loves some people more than others because they might have more gifts than us. So Abram is simply asking this. God, if you're serious about making this great nation through me, then I need some sort of sign. A sign. That's it. Look at this friendship moment in uh, verse 5. He takes him outside. And notice the wording here. He didn't command him to go outside. God is with Abram. And he takes him outside. There's a difference. Think of you as a, a parent or grandparent. When you take your child outside, you are with him or her and you are pushing him or her in out the door, from the house out. And you're not saying go outside like we typically do in our house. Get outside, go play. No, no, no. With him, let me take you out and let me show you the sign that you've asked. And then he tells him, look up at the sky and count the stars. Can you count them? Then he says to him, so shall your offspring be. If there's one thing that I've struggled with this week, it's this question. And it's all too human of us to do this. Can I really trust your promises? 
Can I really trust your promises, God? That's a question that's been in the back of my head all week. And it's certainly easy for us to do that. Based on our circumstances, can we truly see that God is there in the midst of us? Based on what we're going through in our life, we do have this all-too-human question, do you really love me? You promised in Scripture that you'd be for me and with me and beside me, but do I see it? One of the things that Abram is shown in this particular passage is, is that not only is he taken outside and he's told to count the stars, he is reminded from the very first part of this conversation that God is with him. I am your shield. I'm your protector. But I am also the God who is befriending you. I am your reward. Read verse 7 with me. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And here's the other promise. Not only are you going to have many children come through you, but you're also going to have land that is promised to you. But look how Abram responds to this to God. Abraham, excuse me, Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Church, one of the ways that we commit ourselves to God in and this covenant friendship is through faith. And this is what you see here in verse 6. He believed the Lord. He had faith that the Lord was indeed promising him, but also guaranteeing this promise. And it is this faith that he not only communes with God, that he is able to have this friendship with God, but it is through this faith that we receive the promises of God as well. I want you to hear that clearly. Faith is how we are made friends with God, but it's also how we receive the promises of God as well. It's not just believe, it's have faith and receive the promises that I have for you. And when we talk about the promises of God as it relates to Christ, this is eternal life. And now let me just take an aside once it comes to eternal life. is We commonly think of eternal life as Oh, I have X amount of years with God after I die. That's only part of eternal life. It's not just when I die, I live with God forever, but it's also a quality of life that we have because God has befriended us. Eternal life is a quality and quantity of life. And so when we have faith in God, we receive the blessing of eternal life where he fills us up with himself so that we might experience the fullness of his joy and love and that he begins changing us on the inside so that we might look more and more like his son but notice as it relates to these receiving of the promises of God that Abram has and also the faith that he has in the promises of God Abram doesn't stop there he also worships the Lord. Verses 8 through 11. I won't reread those, but you can glance down at them. This can be somewhat pretty odd to our eyes as 21st century Americans. He asks for a bull and a ram and a dove. And then Abram goes and he slaughters them, divides them. But then you have this specific uh, part that it says that, but he didn't 
have the bird. And then you notice that these vultures come and try to take of the carcasses, but Abram shoes them off. What in the world is that about? It's simply this, church. Abram is so overwhelmed by the promises that God has given him that he can't help but worship God in the way that he knew in his day and time. And he is very careful and precise in the worship that he is giving to God. So when you read those verses 8 through 11, I want you to not be caught up in the sacrifices themselves, but I want you to hear this, that he is so caught up in the awe of God and what he's doing that he has to worship in that moment. And that's how he's able to express that faith to Yahweh. These are certainly details to demonstrate that he believes God and trusts him. But here's where I fail. And maybe you do this too. When I read, when I hear the promises of Christ, at least most of the time, I'm not humbled by them. I'm not humbled by them the way that I should be. I'm not placed into a posture where I'm filled with awe. And I sadly regret, re- regretfully say that, but that's, sometimes that's the way I am. When I hear the promises, I read the promises of Christ, I don't fall into a humility of worship. Because I have this tendency to neglect the promises of God. Sometimes I completely even lower the promises that Christ has given to me. And when we do this church, what we're doing is, this is what we're telling God, I don't care. I don't care what your promises are. I don't care to hear them. Because we have heard the promises that we have in Christ of eternal life. And yet we sometimes diminish and lower them in many ways. We're saying, I don't care about your goodness, God. We're saying, I don't care how you've reached out to me through your cross and through your resurrection. We say, I don't care that you have made these declarations and these promises that you will make sure that they don't return void. As one writer has said, sin at its very root is unthankfulness. Did you hear that? Sin at its very root is unthankfulness. I think he's spot on. Because if you do the opposite, if you flip it around, what then is true worship? True worship of God is truly thankfulness. It's thankfulness, church. Thankfulness is a posture of the heart and the mind as well where we see the universe absolutely drenched in God's grace. And specifically, the thankfulness that you and I perceive are promises that God has promised to us in Christ. And that thankfulness is able to come from deep within us and say, thank you, God, for the very things that you have given me today, the gifts that I have been, have been given, and the promises that have been found in Christ that you do not make sure to return to you void. And we could even say that thankfulness, it bonds and it coheres friendships. So I want you to hear me at the end of this sermon this morning. Have you ever been ungrateful for somebody? Think about those friendships that you had over the years. Ever been ungrateful for the person that you love? 
you know you love them, but you're ungrateful for them for that day or that week. A friend, a spouse, a loved one. How did that ungratefulness in your heart actually affect your friendship? For the bad, right? Did it make you despise them? Oftentimes when I know this ungratefulness is deep down in my heart and I look at the friend that I know that I love, it makes me despise them. It makes me see all the errors in their life, doesn't it? It makes me see all the mistakes they've made when I have an ungrateful heart. The very person that we call a friend, we despise and lower them and don't see them truly as gifts. Because when we're ungrateful and unthankful in our friendships, it's too easy for us to even approach God in the same way. Because when we have this posture of unthankfulness in our lives, we cheapen and, and pervert the very promises of God. And we also lower the relationship that we have with Him through Christ. So if I can submit one thing to you this week, church, it's this. By the Spirit's help and by grace, may we cultivate an attitude of thankfulness. May we cultivate an attitude and a posture of thankfulness because we know in our heads that God has given us good, good gifts through Christ. But have we let that saturate into our hearts? Have we let those promises truly marinate in our hearts? That this friendship that has been extended to us by God the Father through His Son, through the covenant of His blood, might it transform our hearts to be thankful. Not just be caught up here in our heads, but actually rooted deeply in our hearts to be thankful, to be grateful, to be compelled to worship God as the way Abram did. So how in the world can we wake up in the morning and just say a simple thank you for the very promises that have been made in Christ, the very promises and the gifts that you have in your own life? And then how in the world can we allow those promises deeply embed in our hearts so that we do see friends and we do see strangers and we do see neighbors as gifts? And we can covenantly bond with them and know that Christ has made promises to them as well. And how can we extend those promises to them? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. And I pray that we just don't run through prayer. It's so easy just to jump into prayer and to sometimes every Sunday just say the same prayer. But we know that true worship comes through your spirit. And then we need a lot of your spirit to be able to take our hearts that are sometimes hard and stony and to make them soft. And so may you continue to cultivate in us this week hearts of thankfulness so that we don't despise your friendship with us, that we don't despise or lower the covenant that you have made with us through your Son, and that we also don't despise or lower or even degrade the life that you have given to us through your Son. So forgive us for having ungrateful hearts. 
Forgive us of rebelling like Jonah. Forgive us for running away at times like Abram and Noah. Lord, may we truly receive the friendship that has been made through your son and understand that it is a friendship of life. And may we be overwhelmed with that life. Posture our hearts this week, Lord, to order to understand the goodness and the grace that we swim in each and every day. May we be your church this week and understand how we can express that grace to our neighbors and friends. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen.